Hey, this is Carl. Are you interested in Xamarin Forms? Do you want to get started with me? Well, if you're going to Dev Intersection, October 25th through the 28th, consider going to my Xamarin Forms workshop on Monday, October 24th. It's going to be an all-day workshop. The first half, we're going to set up Xamarin Forms and go through the whole process of getting all your devices hooked up. And second half, we're going to dive right in. We're going to do a whole bunch of stuff, including an MVVM application that you'll be able to use as a model for your stuff going forward. We're going to deal with native components as well as the stuff that's in the box XAML-wise. So go to devintersection.com right now and sign up for the workshop. There's still a few seats left, and uh, we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1362, with guest Ben Godwin. Recorded Thursday, October 6th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Going to be a fun show, fun show, serverless architecture. Ben Godwin is here with us. Uh, first of all, Richard, uh, you know, we this is conference season. We're going to be at Dev Intersection. We're going to be not only in Las Vegas at Dev Intersection, we're going to be in Amsterdam at Dev Intersection. We are indeed. And uh, buddy, how are things going with the Humanitarian Toolbox? Things are really good. You know, we're on a uh, a fundraising drive right now. It's sort of end of the year. And so folks that are looking at their year end and sort of their taxes and things like that, this mm-hmm. is the time to get contributions. And there's been a, there's been a bunch of them. And in fact, if you don't mind, uh, I wanted to call out a couple starting with one. I'm almost neglectful to even admit this, but back in last year, uh, uh, Michael and Susanna Stifel, and this is the Michael Stifel who's been on our show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, made a, a substantial donation to Humanitarian Toolbox um, really in early days. Wow. You know, today with us coming up on V1 of Already, and you know we're in the news more and a lot more press around it, it's been, uh, we're, we're receiving more donations then, but way back at the beginning, um, uh, Michael and Susanna made some contributions that just kept things going and reminded us that uh, we really are a charity. So, uh, uh, Michael and, and Susanna, thank you so much. It uh, means the world to us, and part of it's uh, kept us actually functioning. You know, he hasn't been on the show in a long time, dude. Yeah, and not only that, but Michael was the first guy to talk about Azure on .NET Rocks, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Way yeah. back, that's that's a long time ago. So. Yeah. Funny. Uh, and uh, But if you'd like to contribute to HTBox, the simplest way is just to go to uh, the website, htbox.org. There is a Donate Now button there. Uh, but there's, if you'd like to put in some programming time, there are projects on GitHub. We're constantly building software now. The number of projects is ever increasing. And we're uh, writing open source software for disaster response. And, you know, it happens to be we're recording while uh, Hurricane Matthew is headed for Florida. Yeah. So a particularly poignant moment to remind ourselves that the uh, the the NGOs out there these these non governmental organizations that do disaster response they're really good at what they do but they're not technology folks and yeah. if there's anything that we've really been doing at HTBox the past couple of years it's bringing that mobile and cloud technology to disaster response yeah make and- them a little more agile a little faster save lives. And uh, and get people back to their normal lives quicker. And what could be better than that, really, when it comes I to software? Totally agree. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I've been up to, buddy. What have you been up to? Oh, you know, just curing diabetes and helping people understand nutrition. Uh, I've uh, dedicated the second half of my life to educating the public about uh, metabolic syndrome, and uh, which most of us seem to be on a collision course with. And uh, how to eat better to uh, take care of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Going well for you, that's for sure. It is. And, you know, speaking of Dev Intersection being in Vegas, I actually am doing a retreat for keto beginners. These are people who want to learn how to eat the high-fat, low-carb diet and do it in the real world, but uh, don't, you know, need a commitment device. So I'm basically renting a house for a week, the second week in January next year in Las Vegas and it's got a great big kitchen and you basically come and hang out for the week. We're going to 
go through all the science. We're going to go through the recipes. We're going to go out to eat so you know how to like exist in the real world and prep for going out into the world without, uh, you know, without having to take a whole bunch of crappy food with you. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. Awesome. And you can check that out at retreat.2keto.com. The number two keto.com. All right, man, let's roll the music for better. No framework. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, you know, uh, .NET sure is confusing these days, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you got .NET Core, you got portable libraries, you've got uh, open source versions of ASP.NET and stuff, and it's hard to know what, uh, what you mean when you say .NET anymore. It used to just be synonymous with a framework that ran on Windows and gave Windows developers a whole bunch of uh, features that they you know, Java-like features, virtual machine and all that. But nowadays, it goes everywhere. It's cross-platform to the nth. And uh, we don't really understand when Microsoft comes out with these new monikers what they actually mean. .NET Standard is one such moniker. And we've done a pretty good job of explaining what it is on .NET Rocks. But I still see a lot of people face-to-face who maybe haven't heard the show who just want to go read something and uh, understand it. So... The Microsoft blog, uh, the .NET blog, at 1362.pwop.me, there's a post called uh, Introducing .NET Standard. And this is from September 2016. It's pretty recent. And it has a, a TLDR, you know, too long, don't read version, which is great. And uh, it's just plain English. It's a really concise, good explanation of why we need .NET Standard and what it is all about. So I thought I would give them a shout out. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Uh, and this is good stuff. Um, we talked a bit about this with Scott Hunter way back in the day, but maybe it's time to have Imo on to uh, to really drill into it. Yep. Yep. And it, it, and it is a little too complex to just reduce to a soundbite. So I do yep. recommend you go check it out and understand the big picture. Sure. 13, 1362.pwop.me. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1317, one of the ones we recorded that in NDC. This one in particular was with Paul Stack. We were talking about cloud infrastructure, yep. which I think plays pretty nicely into our conversation around serverless architectures. And this comment comes from Thomas Betts. Now, Thomas has been listening to the show for a really long time, and we get so many emails from him privately yeah. Yeah. that we forget I don't, I think we've only sent him a mug like once and it's been years. So yeah. clearly time for a fresh mug, Thomas. Plus this comment is super awesome. Uh, where he says, I feel this episode missed the mark a bit regarding the serverless platform as a service offerings. Whether using virtual machines or platform as service, time needs to be spent to think differently about your software than in the traditional data center. And I would have liked to hear more of that discussed. Hmm. Paul said that he mostly just manages VMs in the cloud and doesn't build for any of the specific platform tools, whether specific like Azure Service Fabric or generic like Docker containers. Hmm. While moving to virtual machines in the cloud eliminates the traditional data center concerns, that is only one factor to consider. To really benefit from a cloud architecture, your system needs to be designed to run on what is effectively commodity hardware. Instead of scale-up approaches, using a few powerful machines, it is far more effective to scale out using lots of lower-strength machines. The next step in the evolution is to have different components of your system be able to scale independently. If that's the case, then needing separate sets of VMs seems unnecessarily heavy given the current state of major cloud providers. I think that Paul is correct that almost no company is using multiple cloud providers for redundancy since that very rarely makes economic sense. Ironically, the only way that could make sense is to use VMs, since those are mostly transportable. It's the only common part between the different cloud providers, although I think containers is going to change that. The more you invest in one platform, say Service Fabric versus AWS Lambda, the more you are committed to staying on the cloud provider for the long term, although Service Fabric can be run on other clouds. Mm. Instead of the old Microsoft versus Linux debate, I think we'll start seeing very similar arguments between Azure and AWS. Yes, that argument is definitely going on. Yep. The mindset seems to be the difference between someone who likes to do things instead of someone who just wants to get things done. Good yeah. line. Yeah. In the Linux world, or AWS or Docker and so forth, I can do a lot. In the Microsoft Windows Studio Azure Office, I can quickly get things done. 
I don't know. I think the two worlds are getting closer together than you think, Thomas. But uh, I'm with you that Microsoft's got a strength in the platform as a service play, and especially if they allow it to be cross-plat, like on-premise as well as other clouds, that's even more compelling. Um, but yeah, I think this whole show is going to be drilling deeper into this subject you felt we should drill deeper into. So I'm here to serve, sir. Thank you so much. And Thomas, uh, Donnet Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a Donnet Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet. We feed him to our rabbits. <laughs> okay. So, time to introduce our guest today, Ben Godwin. He's a full-time .NET web developer working mainly in C-sharp and JavaScript. Ben's really passionate about tools or tech that make developers more productive and products more reliable. He loves the new and shiny, but also treasures the robust and reliable stuff that just works and gets things done. Ben tweets at Ben Prague and blogs at benprogblog.com. Oh, man. <laughs> Say that three times fast. Welcome, Ben. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. Yeah. Great to have you. <laughs> so do you want to, uh, before we get into it, address the, uh, the, the, the comment that Richard read? Uh, well, I think I think the comment will be addressed by the entire conversation. I mean, I think if I was to speak about that comment now, it would probably be a show completely over. Yeah, true. Uh, That's what I was thinking when I found it. I'm like, you know what? This is what we're talking about today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So serverless architectures, I mean, I think Microsoft's got the lead on this, but have you explored other platforms? Is there ways to, you just don't own a VM of any kind and you still have an app running in the cloud? Uh, well, I mean, the the company I currently work for, we we've invested, um, you know, in in Amazon's web services rather than into uh, into Azure. Um, so uh, my experience is limited to, to AWS mainly. Oh, um, interesting. And and uh, we've been we've been you know experimenting with their Lambda product, um, which is basically uh, functions as a service. You know, it's almost like the the culmination of everything as a service is now just arbitrary code running in the cloud as a service. Interesting. Um, so, I mean, that, that's what we're playing with at the moment. It's this technology Lambda. So they call it um, event-based compute service. Um, essentially, like I said, it's, it's code that you've got running. Um, you don't manage a virtual machine or any kind of instance whatsoever. You literally have code. It's uploaded somewhere. You forget about it. And then it's executed in response to either events which are published um, by other Amazon products. Or um, you can sort of trigger them manually using another one of their products called API Gateway, which is just a way of exposing those functions via an HTTP endpoint. So I guess question number one is, what languages? Um, AWS Lambda currently supports uh, Node.js, uh, Python, and Java. Um, so in terms of Microsoft's offering, um, which I think is uh, Azure Functions, um, they offer functions that you can write in C-sharp, which is obviously a, a big pull for .NET developers, uh, yes. unfortunately. They were, a bit, they were a bit too behind with it as far as we were concerned. Um, you know, Lambda came first, and we were already using AWS. And when you said Node.js, I mean, aren't you really saying JavaScript? Uh, I am saying JavaScript, yes. Yeah, yeah okay. So, okay, because it's interesting. It's like Node.js, Java, Python. It's like, well, Java and Python are a language. Node.js is more of an approach to doing web development or web services using JavaScript. It definitely is, yeah. Yeah. So I just it's interesting that they they would reference it that way. Is there something about Node.js that you need to know? It's not just regular JavaScript, it's Node.js JavaScript. Oh, it's it's serious JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm certainly it's been my experience that re reading Node.js JavaScript is actually JavaScript you'll like because it's it's <laughs> it's a lot more coherent. Like it's just, you know, the ugliness that comes of UI rendering in JavaScript that right. doesn't happen in Node. Well, it's anything oh, okay. that's client side in a browser just is messy, isn't it? Yeah, this, uh, UIs are ugly. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. I mean, you know, sort of the Node.js JavaScript is the actual engineering JavaScript as opposed to the glue that we were kind of used to before for just you know sticking websites together. Sure. Have you, by the way, seen Azure Functions? Uh, yes. In this is what I was talking about before. Yeah, how you can use them C sharp code in those functions. Right. 
So I really want to know how um, AWS Lambda compares with Azure Functions, and we really haven't even talked about Azure Functions on .NET Rocks yet. I took a look at them, and I thought it would be neat to just have a function like a service is a function, like you pass stuff into it and you get stuff back. But they don't really have a return value, do they? They're just things that run. Um, well, I can't really speak to, to um, exactly how um, Azure uh, functions work because I haven't really got any experience with them. Um, but from what I've read, they are kind of similar to Lambda in that, you know, you, you can pass stuff if and, and get stuff back. Okay. Um, uh, I think it just depends on what your function actually does. You know, mm. does it do processing and then offloads that, the results of that processing to a database or does it kind of, you know, give you data back in the form of, uh, I don't know, JSON or something like that? Yeah. The last time I checked, Azure Functions don't have return values, but I'm, I, I right. could be wrong about that. It's kind of funny. Okay. Well, I mean, one of the things that we, we're kind of looking at using Lambda and API Gateway for is to kind of replace our traditional servers. So, you know, obviously the, the, the name serverless doesn't obviously mean there are no servers. You know, obviously for any of, any of this to work, it has to have servers. Right. But um, somebody else should own them. Yeah, exactly. It's just somebody else's problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I just want to rent them for a little while. <laughs> uh, one of the really good things about um, these Lambda functions is that they're built to um, 100 millisecond kind of blocks. Um, so if you've got a function that um, only needs to do lots of processing for a small amount of time during the day, then, you know, you're not paying for a server to kind of just sit there idly waiting for requests. You know, you're literally just paying for the processing you're using. Right. Yeah, because in the sort of traditional VM model, and I love I'm putting traditional around the cloud product already. (laughs) Really? This fast? My goodness. You you do pay a fee for the existence of the VM, whether it's used or not. Yeah. You know, and you pay more based on the amount of compute you use. But with this, all there is is compute. That's right. Mm. Not that I think Um, the cost of cloud is the biggest issue. Uh, it certainly isn't. And I mean, obviously, different different organizations are going to have different problems. Um, you know, the reducing the cost wasn't necessarily a problem for us. Um, but with everything, you know, we want to be as efficient as we can be. Sure. But it, I also really appreciate the granularity. And I don't want to go away from AWS Lambda because I think all too often we're so focused on purely the way Microsoft does things. It's really interesting to look at how this is being solved elsewhere. And JavaScript is JavaScript. Like, there's no question you could use this. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think there's a there's a definite reason that you know um, .NET developers probably would tend towards you know writing their functions in C sharp. I mean, sure. you know, I hadn't I hadn't really done any serious Node uh, JS work before. Mm. You know, I'd, obviously I'd written JavaScript, but I hadn't done Node JS style JavaScript. Um, so there's obviously a curve, you know, in terms of you know you've got to learn how to do it. You've got to learn how to make yourself productive in that environment. You've got to learn how to test those things. You know, there's a whole there's a whole load of things. You know, you've got to get right to make sure that you're creating code which is just as efficient as the code you were previously writing in C sharp. Right. But although I would um, argue, and this may be a bit of a digression, I th- the, when I talk to folks that are getting deeply into Node, if they came from the JavaScript UI world, they have a harder time. Where your thought process around building services in C sharp, I think they apply pretty well to Node. Yep, I can definitely imagine that uh, you know people who are used to writing sort of with a traditional kind of C sharp mindset um, or any kind of like uh, you know sort of proper object oriented mindset mm-hmm. um, probably do take sort of. I mean, on, only in that you know maybe you have to structure it more carefully. But I think with a lot of sort of JavaScript applications these days, you know, the amount of JavaScript being written, um, you know, anyone who is not carefully structuring their code, you know, carefully making sure things are modular to some degree. Um, well, they're just asking for a, a pain, mm. you know, just, they're just entering a world of pain when it comes to, you know, maintaining those applications. Right. Yeah. Uh, totally. I totally agree. And it is, it is very interesting. All right. So if I'm eliminating the server, what about all of the other things? Security. Okay. Um, well, I mean, p- part of being serverless, um, you know, part of the idea is that you can sort of just farm out these kind of different bits and pieces to um, various services. So, um, you know, we've had, uh, we've had various other things as a service for a while now. So we've got kind of authentication sort yep. of systems. Um, you know, there's, uh, the two I can think of, uh, Auth0 and, uh, I think it's user app, you know, um, services have been running for a while now where you can, um, they can do your kind of, uh, client side token, uh, authentication stuff. Um, so, you know, you can handle that with some experts that know that thing. 
And then, you know, you can uh, pay AWS for some Lambda functionality to, you know, put data in a database or get it back out. And then you can have your HTML code or your just, you know, your static or mainly static website with some JavaScript uh, sitting in a, I don't know, an Amazon S3 bucket or, you know, some other cheap hosting server, Mm -hmm. you know, where you can just host HTML. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think part, part of this is, uh, you know, accepting the fact that, you know, you don't have to own everything anymore. Right. You, know, you can just, you can just farm things out. And so you're, if you're applying security to a given, uh, function, you're just essentially just marking up this needs this kind of security. Uh, I think the, the security side of things is, um, is quite an, an interesting one and quite a complex one. Um, and I mean, my experience is it is fairly, fairly kind of limited, but from what I've looked at originally, um, uh, previously, sorry, um, some of these, uh, I, uh, authorization providers, they'll actually talk to other providers. So you can kind of tell, uh, Auth0, for example, that you want to talk to, um, Amazon and it just all kind of like seamlessly works, hmm. basically. Um, you know, uh, Amazon itself provides its own, uh, identity management system. Um, as I presume, uh, Windows Azure does. Um, you know, so, so these are problems that exist, but they're problems that, you know, you don't have to worry about unless right. you work for one of these companies. <laughs> oh, I see. So, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Full disclosure. So it's, some, it's, again, it's someone else's problem. <laughs> yes. Well, as well, it should be, right? This is not your prime, primary, um, you know, deliverable. I, I did a show over on the run as side recently with Jefferson over to talk about work on the things that are unique to your business and farm everything else out and getting a good username and password service in place. Not critical. You know, that's not your primary business uh, contribution. You can get that somewhere else. But do you find when yeah. you go serverless that you trade one set of problems for another? Um. Well, almost certainly. I mean, if, if nothing else, in the fact that, you know, we're so used to working with servers that there's this underlying knowledge and understanding of how they work. And when that suddenly is taken away from you, then yes, you're suddenly like, oh, hang on a minute. How do I manage this? You know, where right. is my, uh, I have no session, obviously, yeah. all of a sudden. Right. You know, there is no, there is no persistence layer on a, on a box. You know, yes, you can put it in a database. Yes, you can, you know, you local storage in the browser or cookies or whatever. Um, but th- yeah, there's suddenly this thing that you, previously had to rely on which is no longer there um so yes it's definitely uh definitely a new set of challenges well just the concept of a project now right because you don't have a big bundle of source you have little bundles of source are you deploying each one of them separately well i think that's uh that's that's definitely a problem um i mean with uh with aws at the moment they uh you know, it's really easy to get started using Lambda and using API Gateway to expose those functions as a, you know, as a REST endpoint. Um, you know, you basically, you log into your web console, you click a button, you say you want to create a new function, it kind of guides you through the process. There's a load of blueprints that you can select to kind of get like a pre, pre-baked version with a, some template code and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, you can test it directly in the browser. You can say you want to, you know, you want to test it. Um, you can construct a little JSON object, which represents the input that would go into that function. Mm. And then it'll print out to the console, like underneath it, what's going on. Um, any, any errors and stuff are flagged and show, you know, it's really easy to kind of get started with that. And the same when you want to kind of take that function and then expose it via an endpoint. You know, you open up API Gateway, you know, you just kind of start creating a, creating a little API. Um, you tell it, oh, I want to create a new function. Let's say it's a, a get method, get users or something like that. You tell it you want to call a function. Let's say your function is called get users. Um, you know, as you're typing in the name of functions, it's kind of bringing up the options so that you can just click on things. And then it automatically pops up boxes saying, Oh, API gateway is going to need this permission to call this Lambda function. Is that okay? You press okay. It's handled the permissions for you. And you know, within, within a few minutes, you're looking at this endpoint, which Amazon has given you, and you can just copy and paste it into your browser. And then all of a sudden you see the result of your Lambda function returned as JSON in the browser, you know, and, and so that kind of like onboarding like process is just really smooth and really nice. Um, but then you do have the problem of that's all done through the web console. Right. You know, that is not necessarily repeatable, deployable process. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I mean, Amazon do provide, uh, they, Amazon has a CLI interface and you can, you know, you can use that to script virtually everything. Um, and when you've created things through the web console, all of that is exportable, um, in various formats so that you can put it back in later. Um, so it's not like they don't give you some options for it. 
Um, but uh, it's not as a uh, it's not that easy. Um, I mean, one of the other things to consider with sort of Lambda and uh, an API gateway is is kind of versioning. So uh, I mean, if you can you know you can imagine like if you've got a production version of you know a function, let's just say it I don't know uh, gets a list of products from the database, mm-hmm. and then uh, you suddenly decide oh actually I I've added a new column now I want to change my function to return another column. Um, if you've only got one version of that function and it's live and everybody's using it, then <laughs> you know you obviously don't want to just make a change on the fly. You know you yeah, need a, a yeah, version. Right. So you know one of the things you could do is you could say right well I'll have two two Amazon accounts I'll have one for development and one for production. Um, but then you still have the problem of, well, how do I copy my function that's in the development environment to the production environment? Sure. Unless, yeah. I'm, you know, other than just copying and pasting code from one window to another, you know, which is probably fine if you're one person managing one small client. Um, but, you know, if you're going to have a whole suite of functions, you know, a whole kind of microservice, you know, you just don't want to be doing that. It really so, doesn't um, scale well to do it any other <laughs> way, does it? Uh, no, it, do- it doesn't really, no. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of the things that they provide is a versioning system within Lambda. So you can you can create versions of each function, and you can also create aliases for those functions. So for example, you could create an alias called dev, and that always points to like the latest version of the function. And then you could create an alias called prod, and that always points to a, a, n- a numbered version. And then every time you create a new version, prod automatically always points to that latest numbered version, if you kind of see what I mean. So there is that kind of mechanism for versioning functions. But then with API Gateway, you're kind of creating an endpoint, which is calling a function. So you kind of need some way to say, this version of the API needs to call this version of the function. Right. And API Gateway itself has versioning in it, in that you can create uh, multiple deployments of one API. So you can have a dev API, a beta API, a prod API, um, all based on the same kind of uh, original API design. I'd hope you'd have a test API somewhere, right? <laughs> uh, yes, and a, a test. Yes, test, beta, uh, dev, whatever you want to call it. Right. Yes, you can have all of those. Yeah. Um, or, or one of the things they actually suggest is that you might have separate stages per developer. So, you know, I might have a Ben branch, Carl might have a Carl branch, you know, just so you know who's that one is. Right. Um, but anyway, so in order to tie those together, you, need, you can use uh, what they call, you can use variables, basically, in your API definition. Um so you can say this version of the API calls, uh, you know, this alias version of a Lambda function. And that's all fine. You can set all that up by, a- by hand, but it is really annoying. <laughs> yeah. You get to that, you mm. get to that stage and you think this is great, but how am I going to do this with any kind of real number of functions? Like, how am I actually going to do this in a production environment? Um, but fortunately, you know, other people have kind of hit this level of pain. And, uh, and solved it, you know, and, uh, this kind of gets back to what you were saying, Richard, about how do you kind of structure this as a project? Sure. Um, because I mean, one of the, one of the things that you don't have if you're kind of, you know, just writing code in a, in a code window in the browser. Yeah. You don't have anywhere to kind of save that. There is no method for putting that in source control, mm-hmm. um, other than kind of, you know, manually exporting, you know, manually exporting from AWS gateway when it, um, from AWS Lambda and API gateway whenever you want it. So uh, there is an application. It's a node application, and it's called Serverless. Mm. Um, and basically, it, uh, it kind of aims to take away that pain. Um, it's essentially a command line application. Uh, you create projects in it, um, and it allows you to sort of structure all of your um, API gateway and Lambda definitions okay. um, in configuration files. Well, I want to hear more about that. But first, Richard, guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time for me to come up with another stupid meta joke that's only slightly amusing and wastes everybody's time. <laughs> <laughs> Not virtual at all. Nah. Actually, pretty darn explicit. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a SyncFusion Essential Studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you what we like about SyncFusion. They've got over 650 components for web, desktop, and mobile applications, including great native Xamarin controls. They even have enterprise solutions with a dashboard designer and big data platform. And best of all, they're affordable. It's one flat fee for everything. Everyone in the company 
no hassle, no gimmicks, and you really get every application with no restrictions. Check them out at SyncFusion.com or look them up on Facebook to see how you can get started today. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Cindy Houck. Oh, congratulations, Cindy. Yeah. Nice to see a woman win once in a while, huh? Absolutely. Golf clap for you, ma'am. Yes. Yes. And Cindy just won the Sync Fusion Essential Studio. Big pile of awesome from our friends at Sync Fusion. And if you don't know what we just did here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And Ben, it's your turn now. If you had $5,000 US to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? Uh, right. I, I would have to go down the route of, uh, 3D printing. Um, I'd get one of those and, uh, I'd probably just buy a load of like Arduino stuff, you know, or Raspberry Pi components. I haven't really looked mm. at it in that much detail. Um, and if there was any money I had left over, it would probably go on like a model railway. Yeah. <laughs> Really? I would combine. I would combine the lot. I mean, I'm not really into trains myself, but I've got a two year old, and he is he loves his trains at the moment. And uh, uh, I'm just kind of thinking he's going to go down this sort of similar kind of I don't know engineering kind of path that I went down of just being really interested in Lego and just building stuff. Mm, I mean, he already cool. gets really angry when uh, when his little sister kind of like comes along and destroys the train track. So um, you think like if you just. If he just starts referring to her as Godzilla, it gets a lot easier. <laughs> Are you thinking like putting little cameras on the front of the engine and, you know, watch it go around the track from I, the pr- conductor's point of view? Do you know, what? I have no idea, but I just think that if, if I was to learn all of that stuff now, then when it comes to when he wants to do it, I'm not holding him back. Yeah. You know, yeah. We, can, we can build anything. You know, if he wants to build a robot that chases the dog around the house, you know, we can build it. <laughs> <laughs> Who would do that? Would Nobody do- would do that. <laughs> You know, you know that little uh, stick camera I got, the Theta, the the Ricoh Theta S. Yeah, that's a three sixty camera. You mount that on the front of an HO train, which it would probably fit. It's not bigger than that. It's got an HDMI streaming feed out of it, Mm -hmm. so you get a wireless feed off of that. You put on a pair of like Oculus Rift or something, and it's like you're sitting on the front of that train going around the track. Yeah, (laughs) except you're about thirty feet above the conductor, right? Well, it depends on where we position the camera, right? I think we could get it right down on the train. Huh. So it was actually riding on the train. Okay. You could really create an interesting experience about that. Like, talk about ways to affect scale, you know, be able to go through a tunnel, that kind of thing. Richard? Yes? I think George Lucas is hiring. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. Well, this whole, you know, what's going to happen with your son uh, ben, is in the next few years, this 3D 360 experience becoming so mainstream, like he'll never know a time. You know, it's it's amazing yeah. when you think about it, right? Like yeah. th- I'm just talking about a, a, a flat 360 image, but a three-dimensional one as well. Like it's, what is real? Oh, I don't know, but I think programming and anything like that's probably too difficult for me. So we'll have to stick with 2D. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. No question. <laughs> Anyway, very cool idea. I think that's really neat. It'll be, it'll be good fun. All right, where do we go from here? Uh, so you're kind of grant, you have a project and that project represents a bunch of functions. The functions are all sort of versioned independently. Yeah, that's right. So, um, I mean, one of the things that uh, this application serverless really does is it gives you a structure to work to. So, um, it basically, it sort of scaffolds a kind of skeleton for you to start with, with, uh, just a really basic, uh, virtually empty uh, function handler mm. and you can just start typing your javascript in there right you know? um and then you can just kind of add functions uh as you see fit almost so when you create a new function you're doing it by you know using the um, serverless cli um and uh, it automatically puts it in the right folders and stuff like that um but you can if you want to have like shared libraries between them so say you have a library that you know maybe 50 percent of your functions use you can have you know, shared code, um, in that, in that way. Um, but, uh, but, but generally it's fairly kind of unopinionated. Um, it sort of lets you do what you want to a certain extent. 
Um, and it's it's quite it's still quite a new product to be honest. You know, they're I think even they are still trying to work out the best way to structure things or just to wait to see how the community kind of goes comes to a sort of general consensus on this is probably the best way to structure these things. Sure. Yeah, um, no, it very much feels like uh, this is a born in the cloud thing and we're just going to have to figure it out. Well, it is. I mean, the, the project itself is completely open source. Um, I think uh, I sent you a link to the uh, to the GitHub repository um, if you put in the show notes. Yeah, um, I will. Uh, so, so people can go and check it out and, you know, contribute. There's, you know, they're merging pull requests virtually every day. Um, they've recently kind of gone, they, I, I originally was using the, uh, 0.56 version, um, uh, which just shows you <laughs> how early on we are. Sure. Um, they've just, uh, just in the last month or two released, uh, version 1.0. Um, and, uh, wow. basically they had to kind of re-architect their entire system because originally it was built for AWS, uh, you know, Lambda and API gateway, but obviously with, uh, the offerings from, um, Windows Azure and, uh, Google's cloud platform coming along, they wanted to make it so that the uh, support for those platforms was like a plugin architecture. So, uh, the support for AWS is just a plugin. The support for Azure when it, uh, when it is ready is just a plugin. Um, and just a quick mention on that. Um, as far as I can tell by looking at the repository, there is a version, a, there is a branch of the, uh, code base which supports Azure. Um, I've not tested it. Um, it hasn't been, it doesn't look like it's been put in the master branch yet. Um, so I'm completely uncertain of this you know, the, uh, stability of it. Um, okay. but it appears to be there. So if you want to go and check it out, <laughs> you know, uh, feel free. Um, uh, it certainly is, feels a bit like the wild west when you're kind of using technologies, which are this new. Um, but it's, it's, it's very fun. Yeah. Uh, exciting stuff. It is. Um, so to get back to your question, Richard, uh, this kind of using a product like this really does uh, kind of help you structure your code. I mean, obviously, if you're working in a team, you know, you have to be using source control. You can't have two people using the web console together and, you know, you're just trampling over each other's work. Um, you know, it allows you to kind of organize your code into folders, um, but it also lets you do things like unit testing. So uh, the first time we were kind of building just a small suite of functions and we were just taking like baby steps. You know, we were like, let's create one function and put it into production. Um just to check it out, you know, can we unit test it? Can we reliably put it in production? Yes, we can. Mm. Um, and uh, so you can do unit testing, but you can also do offline development. Um, so there are plugins for serverless, which allow you to kind of emulate the API gateway interface. So you can um, kind of spins up a local server and then you can um, sort of just test the JavaScript you're writing in your functions as if, as if they were being called by API gateway. Right. Um, Similar with sort of databases, uh, Amazon has DynamoDB, which is a NoSQL database. Um, if you want to simulate how your function interacts with that, you can get an offline version of Dynamo. Um, and, you know, you can just test all of that offline. Um, and, I mean, for a lot of people, maybe that isn't that useful, but uh, I work from home mainly and I go into the office a few times a month. I have a sort of two and a half hour train journey. Um, so to be actually be able to use that time on a train <laughs> and do some of this work offline is actually really useful. Yeah, no, it's awesome. Yeah, no, no, no toys about it. And it, and just that that whole granular approach to these things means you can you can contribute anywhere. I guess that's part of the challenge is you you are kind of dependent on the cloud. If you're not online, how do you write this code? <laughs> well, well, exactly. I mean, it is it is a real challenge. And and where I live actually is quite rural, and our, our broadband is uh is pretty terrible to be honest. Um, and and sometimes our, my broadband will just die. Like it it will just go off, and I won't get it back for an hour. You know, fortunately, I have a reasonable 3G signal uh, as a backup. But, um, you know, uh, it's probably something that some people just don't think about. But uh, <laughs> it's definitely on my radar now. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. But, it, you know, it also speaks to, you know, could we get Lambda running locally, you know, for just, you know, an, uh, as an offline dev environment or, or running elsewhere? I mean, this, this, we, we expect Microsoft to do this, but I don't know that I ever expect Azure to, or expect uh, Amazon to do it. Uh, well, I mean, I think, to be honest, uh, when I've been doing testing, the, using the offline testing plugin, it seems to work quite well. I mean, I guess it's just using your local sort of Node.js runtime anyway. Right. Um, so as long as your version is kind of in line with the version that Amazon's running. Um, and I think it's I think it's 4.3 is the one they're, they're using. Um, mm -hmm. So obviously, as long as you're true. not on like the... Uh, yeah, that's it. So as long as you're not using the latest one, which I think is about six point something or other, um, you know, you can you can pretty much guarantee it's going to work. Um, one of the really nice things about the offline development 
side of things is just how how fast the feedback loop is, um, especially when you're learning kind of Node.js. So, you know, if you're not a Node.js expert, you know, you're just coming to it and, uh, you know, maybe there's just like little bits and pieces that you're not sure of. You know, you're used to writing JavaScript, but maybe not, you know, Node.js style JavaScript. It's really nice to just be able to write it and save it and run it locally. You know, you don't have to upload your code everywhere. You know, you've just got that instant feedback of this is working, this is broken. Right. Yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. And then be able to just update that part or just test that part. And exactly. again, you know, and I guess the same, you would test this Node.js code the way you test any Node.js code. It's got nothing special because it's running in Lambda. Exactly. It's just, it's just small, um, modular bits of code. It's literally mm-hmm. a function, a single JavaScript function. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't, it's, it doesn't really matter. There's nothing new here, really, except that you're only paying for what you use. Yes, that's right. And you don't have to kind of worry about the infrastructure. Well, and it's, this all gets the whole question about scaling. I guess you don't know, don't care. You just pay for what you use. They'll run as much as they need to. That's right. <laughs> can you actually set rules around like performance requirements or anything? Uh, you can. Yep. Yeah. You can, uh, you can make sure that, well, I mean, you can, you can turn caching on for a start. So, right. um, I mean, it depends on how you're kind of using your Lambda function. So when I'm talking about it, I'm talking about predominantly from functions that, um, return information from uh, a database or maybe yeah. save information to a database, that kind of thing. Um, but I mean, obviously, th- this is just arbitrary code. So, you know, you could use it for anything. You know, you can use it just to kind of link bits together. So one of the case study kind of examples they often give is, um, you know, uh, somebody uploads a photo to your website or a picture of something. Um, and then you have a Lambda function, which is just look, just waiting for an S3 bucket to say, here's a new image. Right. And then the Lambda function just resizes it into a few different versions and then pushes it back, you know, pushes those new versions back into the bucket. Mm. Um, so obviously, I mean, in that case, it's not, you know, you're not returning any data. It's running silently behind the scenes. But for anything that returns data from a database, you can obviously turn on um, caching so that, you know, rather than it hitting the database every single time, most of the time it's hitting the cache. Um, I mean, in terms of uh, throttling, how often your function gets called. I think it's more to do with the events which trigger that function. Right. So for example, with API Gateway, it's more, you know, throttling the requests that come into a to, to an endpoint rather than telling Lambda how often it can run. Well the problem with infinite scale is you can get an infinite bill, right? <laughs> well yes. <laughs> as as, you know, here's a whole other aspect of a DDoS attack. I'm not actually going to denial service. I'm going to deny your pocketbook. I'm going to bomb <laughs> your site so hard yeah. And then, and because Lambda will just keep scaling and keep responding, you're just going to get this Titanic bill. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've just reminded me I need to move my blog now to another web server. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, this that is an aspect of it. I, I would like to set caps and things, but kind of do that in an elegant way so that, uh, yeah. you know. I'm if, not sure if you can set uh, – I'm not sure if you can set a cap on budget in, uh, in AWS. I know you can uh, get it to warn you. Right. You know, I've had emails saying, you know, you've used, you know, you said warn us when you've used this much money or, you know, when you cost this much money. You know, mm-hmm. I get those emails, but right. uh, I haven't noticed anything that says just stop it. <laughs> well, you know, and no other than switch. you have to do it, right? Uh, you well, know, well you yeah, do- that's it. <laughs> so you've got to be paying attention to it. I mean, in theory, this is making you money somehow. So busier is better. But, you know, that that attack model where I'm going to figure out a way to exercise your site without making any money for you, but cost you money is kind of interesting. I think of more efficient ways to do that. But, uh, yeah, a, a very curious little problem space there to do that the right way. Um, what about data storage? Anything special under the sun for this? Or is it this is all mid-tier stuff and your data store is your data store? Uh, yeah, it basically is. I mean, you know, the the application code that you'd normally write to run on your web server you're just writing in node.js and it's right. just being executed in that function so yeah you can still you know write information to any database system you want um i mean in aws um you know amazon have uh, an an sdk um for node as they do for all their other languages they support um so you can interact with their products really easily um so yeah you know you want to put data in a in a mysql database or a dynamodb or you know sql server you know anything you want really it really sounds like it'd be pretty painless to take an existing Node.js app and migrate it to Lambda, or maybe even to Azure Functions, as it runs JavaScript as well. Right? Yeah, probably. I mean, as I say, I think as long as it works in the runtime and yeah. uh, you can package it up, um, it shouldn't be a problem. I mean, the deployment process to to Lambda, if you do it manually, is as simple as 
zip up your file and upload it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, it, there's nothing complicated with it. It's it's literally that. Wow, um, you two know, steps? Isn't that at least one too many? <laughs> so one of the things that serverless does for you, which is really nice, is it just allows you to deploy things really easily. Um, you know, you can say, right, serverless, I've defined all this stuff. Now I want to deploy it. So you can say, I'm going to deploy, and then it will bring up a list of things, and you just bash the space bar to select all of the things that, you know, you can deploy, and then it just deploys all of that to whatever region or whatever stage you want to deploy that to. And that means that if you then want to kind of deploy that all to another region, uh, it's it's just as simple as creating a new definition of a region. So um, just for a bit of background, AWS has different regions. Obviously, you've got, you know, US, right. uh, East Coast, West Coast, as well as, like, European and stuff like that. Sure. Right. Um, so if you want to move all that code to be closer to a different resource, it's not a problem. You know, it's literally just telling serverless you want to do that. Um, and that actually almost creates this illusion of this is too easy. Yeah, you know, this it couldn't worked? possibly work. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's, re- it's really interesting. I'm, I'm trying to envision a workflow that also involves Visual Studio or even Visual Studio code. I mean, either way, I want IntelliSense on my JavaScript, right? But it makes sense that you would just drop out to a command line for your actual deploy. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I work in Visual Studio virtually all the time in my day job. Um, Oh, yeah. You can, uh, I think there are templates for Lambda functions. I'm pretty sure that um, there is a, there's an SD, uh, there's a Visual Studio toolkit that Amazon produced for working with um, AWS. So you can install that in Visual Studio and it gives you really kind of easy access to, you know, everything, you know, you just kind of explore your S3 bucket, your databases, all that kind of thing. Um, and I'm pretty sure that when you install that, it installs some templates for creating node functions and things like that. Um, sorry, Lambda functions. Right. Okay. Um, I haven't, I haven't sort of dug into that. Uh, I prefer just the sort of command line kind of, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to use node, I'm just going to do it like all the tutorials say, and there's never like a graphical user interface in sight. Right. Yep, spoken like a node developer. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a strong merit to that, right? It's just that that makes it very reproducible. Again, you know, I live in this web test world where I want to be able to stand up a hundred instances of something and run the load, the the uh, the uh, full test suite in just a few minutes. So I can, I want that command line so I can do that distribution and recollection and stuff. This would totally work for that. Yeah, it does. And I mean, I think it's been built with that in mind in that, you know, it, it recognizes and addresses that problem of, you know, there is no nice way to do this and it packages it up and it works properly. You know, it works as you'd expect it to work. Nice. Well, it seems to solve that problem. I mean, uh, how, how is it taking off? I mean, uh, this, this, uh, well, I think, I think sort of serverless as a, well, as a buzzword, as a concept, you know, it's, it's, it's everywhere at the moment, you know, um, and it's, you know, it's one of the things that I was waiting to hear on the show. You know, I was listening to the show, you know, a few months ago and I was, I was waiting for someone to kind of explain to me how to solve this problem. Um, right. but it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, sort of conceptually, there's a, there's a, I think there's a new conference, which is called server, serverless conf, I think. Hmm. Uh, I think they just, just had one in, uh, Tokyo and I think there's one in London at the end of the month. Um, and I mean, it's, it's, kind of all to do with this idea that you know you don't have to have ownership of infrastructure anymore you know you can just focus on delivering a product you don't have to focus on managing all this stuff all these kind of peripheral kind of bits you know Uh, and i think that's one of the really nice things about it like you know as a developer i don't have to kind of I don't really have to think about what the ops guys are going to do. You know, I don't have to ask right. them to provision any kind of resources. I can just be like, oh, I'm going to just going to deliver this. I'm just going to write code and then I can test it and I know it works and the scaling is done, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Seems great. Seems like the future. I mean, it's, I'm certainly, you know, I'm sure it is not for every kind of project. You know, yeah. there's obviously projects that rely on <laughs> on complicated server configurations, on, you know, kind of proper persistence and things like that. But for a lot of websites, you know, I mean, you just, you just have to, you don't have to browse very long to hit a website, which basically is, you know, 95% script, you know. Yeah. And for sites like that, you know, there's probably no need for, you know, a few servers kind of sitting idle for, you know, 50% of the time in the background. Well, there's no reason you couldn't mix this stuff too. You might have a few VMs running in EC2, and but a bunch of your front end and other pieces are running in Lambda. They, they, they'd work fine together. 
Well, definitely. And I, I, that's one of the things that I, we're kind of looking at. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of slowly sort of, you know, making things slightly more serverless so that we can get rid of servers where we don't need them. But at the same time, we've got a load of code that's already written mm. for kind of, you know, ASP.NET. Um, but it just means that we can say, right, well, actually, we're not going to use that much of it. So we can put it on a much smaller instance. Right. So, yeah. you know, we are combining, we are combining the two, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's the right tool for the right job. You know, if it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. Well, it seems really cool. I know that there's a few guys in the AppV Next uh, organization that my, my consultancy that are using it. And uh, me personally, though, it's, it's all new, you know, this is all a, a, a new thing. So that's probably, probably why I've been sitting out most of this uh, discussion, but I've, I've been listening, just absolutely riveting and definitely the future. It, it scales really well. It's very easy to work together in teams and, um, and it, it just simplifies everything, doesn't it? Uh, it certainly feels like that at times. I mean, it, it, it forces you into a kind of a microservice kind of view, I think. Right. You know, and it's, it's, it kind of also forces you to, you know, use the web as it was intended. You know, it is stateless in the way that it works. Sure. You know, there is no, there is no persistence in your function. You know, once your function is executed, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, there is no getting it back from the file system. Right. Sure enough. Yeah. Well, uh, Ben, thanks very much for spending this hour with us. It's fascinating. Oh, it was a pleasure. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the MCC. Yes, I'm a, a